Well, welcome. I feel like being here in a seminary, in a classroom, we should start with an exam. So uh, I'm going to hand out an exam, and you have 25 minutes to complete it. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, <clears throat> here at New Life, we use uh, phrases over and over again, common phrases uh, that you'll hear if you, if you come here enough times, words such as grace, mention New Covenant in the communion, freedom, loved, accepted, community and loving one another, life in Jesus, righteous and holy and our identity in Christ and God as our source and being one with Jesus and united with him on the cross, Christ in you and you in Christ. It's by design that we use these phrases over and over again uh, because we, we want to be able to really instill within our hearts and our minds the importance of these phrases. These are the phrases that the apostles and, and the writers of the New Testament would repeatedly share over and over again as they would try to, try to teach and communicate what this new covenant, what the life in Jesus looks like today. But growing up for me in, in the church, I was saved at age six or seven, but I, I was in the church from as long as I can remember, fortunate enough to have Christian parents I don't remember these phrases a lot. I don't remember hearing that a lot. The, the emphasis really was more on, on what we now need to do, how you now need to live for Jesus, how you need to live for God, and what your behavior and what your works ought to look like. And so <clears throat> it was some 20 years after I was saved when, when my Christianity, my, my life in Jesus began to take on a whole new new understanding when I began to see and understand some of those key phrases and what it means to have Jesus living in me. And, and so this morning, what I want to do is I want to emphasize that aspect of what does it mean to have Jesus living in us and how that leads to good works. You see, that the aspect here that we, and we're not ignoring good works, it's important. It's just, it's, what's interesting is how how much the writers talk about who we are and how little it talks about the works. Not that it never talks about the works, but the emphasis is really on who you are because the works will come as a result of that. But this morning, we come across a passage where we're going to be able to see some of that. So our passage this morning is Ephesians 2. We're going to focus on verse 10. But we're going to start with verses 8 to, eight to 10, because really it's, they all kind of fit together. So Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what an honor it is to study your word. I mean, this is something that you, you placed on the Apostle Paul's heart some 2,000 years ago. And he, he wrote it out, in this case for the church of Ephesus, but you saw fit to preserve this record so that we could have an opportunity to study it. Not to just gain knowledge, not just to be smarter, but so that we can know and understand you. Because that's the point of the scriptures. The point of scriptures is to find life in you, Jesus. And so this morning, we're trusting you as best we know how. 
trusting you to lead us and guide us to experience freedom. And so I look forward to what you're going to do this morning with each and every one of us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, verse 10 begins with the word for. And, and I think what Paul is trying to do is he's, he's been making a point. He's already made the point. He's now trying to bolster the point he's trying to make. So let's, let's try to remind us ourselves, remind ourselves again, what is the main point that he's trying to make here? And, and verse 10 really is the, the very last verse of this incredible paragraph that we've been studying the last number of months. It, it begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 and ends in verse 10. So we're just going to do a really quick brief review of what the structure of those 10 verses were. The first first three verses, one to three, was all about laying out our need for salvation. Basically, how messed up you and I were without Jesus. How we were born dead. When you arrive here, you might have been cute and cuddly and kind, you know, kind to look at, but you were a little terror and a menace because you were dead. You were cut off, separated from God, and therefore desperate for life. And you would find life on your own terms any way you can walking after the flesh, indulging in desires in the, of, the, of the body and the mind, trying to satisfy that need for life. And so that's why we needed Jesus, because no matter what you do, no matter what you did back then, you couldn't find life on your own terms. And then verse 4, but God. Notice the mess we're in, but God being rich in mercy with his great love with which he loved us. Notice what motivates God. It isn't what you did. It isn't how many times you did it. It isn't that you, you finally got your life together and you, you turned over to him. He just loves you. That's it. And this love, this mercy, this kindness is poured out on us. So it causes him to do something. It causes him to act. He won't, he won't stay passive. So what does he do? He made us alive together with him. We were united with Jesus on that cross. At the moment of salvation, at the moment you place your faith in Jesus, because that's all he requires of us, is for us to say, okay, God, do it. He took you and I and he placed us into Jesus on that cross. We were united in his death, burial, and resurrection, made alive together with him and then raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. You're a new creation now, no longer a sinner, but now a saint, righteous and holy and perfect in who you are, not in what you do, but in who you are, in your heart. And yes, we still sin sometimes, but it never changes who we are because our actions never define us. It's the actions of Jesus that defined us. And that leads us then to verse 7. And verse 7 really is connected to verse 4. Verse 4 is all about what motivated God was his love. And then it, verse 7 was what he wanted to do with it. And the, the so what was he loved you to love you. So that's the main point that Paul's trying to make in this whole passage. It's God's perfect love for us. No strings attached. No conditions. No requirements. He just loves you in this moment as you are. And to emphasize that then, he, in verses 8 and 9, he reminds us that God did it all. For by grace, the passage we just read, by grace you've been saved through faith. That's the gift of God, right? The gift of God is salvation by grace. All it requires is for us to believe. 
for us to receive it. Meaning it isn't based on your works of good or bad. So where do works fit into this? And that's verse 10. It's almost like Paul knows his, his readers are questioning this. Because they're, they're shocked that if you're completely saved by grace, then does behavior not matter? Does it not fit into any of this? And Paul's going to say, no, it has a great impact in this. In verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created in Jesus for good works. Now, before we get into that, let me just emphasize something here. Notice that Paul doesn't just say Jesus. He doesn't say you are created in Jesus for good works. Nor does he say that you're created in Jesus Christ for good works. He says you and I are created in Christ Jesus. Now, why is that important? Well, first off, in case you didn't know, Christ is not the last name of Mary and Joseph. It's not the family name. Right? Like when Mary and Joseph showed up in Bethlehem and they came to the inn and they said, do you have any room? And, and they said, well, what's your last name? Uh, Christ. I'm sorry, we have no reservation under the name Christ. Right? Like that's not their last name. Christ is a title. It, it, it's a title. It means anointed one in the Greek or Messiah or Savior. And, and I think there was a reason that Paul phrased it this way. He's trying to stress to us, you're created in Christ Jesus, in the anointed Jesus, in the Messiah Jesus, in the Savior Jesus. It's almost like he's, he's, he's underlying and he's emphasizing this idea that it's not you who saves you. He's the Savior. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works, not good works in order to be created in Christ Jesus. Do you notice the order? The good works are the byproduct. They're the result of all this. And, and I say that because <clears throat> in my study this week of this passage, I was reading commentators and how interesting how quickly they would take this truth that they've been studying in the first nine verses of the, of, the of the chapter here, all about God's grace. And immediately, as soon as they got to this passage, as soon as they saw good works, they all flipped it and became, now this is what you should do. This is what you now owe God. It's almost as if this idea that for all that he's done, for all that he's sacrificed, this is now what you owe him. And really what it does is it, 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 it de diminishes the value of salvation. It makes it into a transactional salvation. God saves you and you now work for him. He rescues you, you now serve him. He saved your life, you now owe him a debt of service. And, and that's not it. But how many times have, have we thought about that? How many times have we understood it that way? For example, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my word. You'll keep my commandments. I don't know how many times I've, I've heard people point to that passage and go, see, we need to now do something to show that we love him. And that, that's not what he was getting at. You see, what Jesus was really trying to say is, if you love me, this is what's going to happen. You see, it, it becomes a natural result, a natural occurrence. It's not something you need to now go do in order to show his love for you. It's the byproduct. It's the result of all that. 
And so it's not some kind of proof or some kind of test good works are. They're the result of what God's wanting to do in us. So let's understand then what makes, what defines a good work. See, growing up, I, I was kind of taught a, a good work was anything moral, anything that followed the rules, anything that was obedient, everything that looked good, that's, that's what it was, a good work. And then if you broke those rules, if you didn't do what you're supposed to do, then that was a bad work. Can anyone else relate to that understanding? All right. So much of that has defined Christianity. But, but I don't think that's what he meant by a good work. See, a good work is defined by something else. It's bigger than just the behavior of it. It's really, it's, it's rooted in the life of Jesus. See, have you ever asked the question, why did Jesus have to rise again? Think about it. Let's, let's play a game. Let's, let's imagine Jesus went to the cross and he was crucified. His blood was shed. You're forgiven. Ticket to heaven is reserved. He, he dies, he's buried, but there's no resurrection. Would that change Christianity today? I mean, think about it. We'd still have the scriptures. We'd still have the Beatitudes and all the teachings of Jesus and, and, and all the aspect of, you know, now we're going to love one another and, and so forth. We'd have all that still. Would Christianity be different if Jesus never rose again? And... And I think as I look around churches today, I don't know if they would miss him. That's sad because the reality is without a risen Savior, there is no Christianity. There's no Christian life. Because it's his resurrection life that empowers and enables the Christian life today. It's his life. So what makes something good or bad is not the behavior and, and what it looks like. Because if that were the case, then I know a lot of unbelievers that have really good-looking behavior. And Jesus says, it doesn't please me one bit. See, what, what pleases God, what makes it good, is not the behavior itself, but the source. That's what makes it good. <clears throat> in, um, in John 14, 12, Jesus said this, it was... It was, the, it was the night of his arrest. And, and earlier on in verse 6, he, he said that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. I'm the way. At, at which point Philip speaks up. And I, I always think this was a perfect Peter moment. So like, why? Like Peter is normally the one that says something foolish this time. So I'm guessing Peter was in the bathroom and Philip finally had his opportunity. And he says, oh, Jesus, can you show us the father? I mean, we've been with you for three and a half years. I mean, if you could just kind of wave your hands, do a little magic trick, you know, open up the curtains, whatever it takes. Can we see the father? That would just make tonight so special. And he says, oh, Philip. Don't you understand? Don't you get it? Don't you know what's going on? That the Father is abiding in me and doing his works. You've, you've seen the Father because you've been seeing me. See, Jesus lived this life constantly depending on his Father to be God in him. But now he's going to turn around. In verse 12, he says, and truly, truly. Pay attention to this. This is important, he's saying. 
I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he'll do because I go to the Father. I remember reading that passage going, man, that's incredible. The things that Jesus did, if I believe in that, then I will do what he did. Except that's not what the verse says. You see, this is great. I can walk up to the screen. It says, he who believes in me, the works that I what tenses do? Present tense. You see, Jesus is not just alive. He's alive and active. And he's doing something today, this morning. He's active. And all he's saying is, will you, will you trust me? Will you believe in me and be a part of what I'm doing? You see, that, that changes so much of our view on Christianity. Think about it. How many times have you prayed, God, will you bless this adventure? Will you bless this venture? Will you bless what I'm about to do? And you're inviting Jesus into your plan. How many people have prayed that? We got it backwards. Really what Jesus is saying is, you know, I've got something going on over here. Do you want to be a part of it? If so, come, come join me. <coughs> Come be a part of what I'm doing. And he's inviting us to be a part of his actions, his work. And that's what's so special. That's what's so crazy about all this. See, in, in Romans 7, verse 6, Paul says, but now having been released from the law, we've been set free from the old covenant system. And we, we kind of talked about this last week. We we're set free through the cross where you died to the law. So you've been set free from this rules-based, principles-based, guidelines-based, follow the old covenant, do the Ten Commandments system so that we serve. We still serve. We still do good things. But now in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. You see, the system that we live in now is now based on on Jesus in us. And he's inviting us to be a part of what he's up to. Now I look at that and I think, what an inefficient system that is. I'm an engineer, right? So I think inefficiencies. That's a really inefficient system. Think about it. Wouldn't it be better if Jesus came and he spoke on this message this morning? How many think it would be better? <laughs> Thank you for not raising your hands and being kind to me. But the reality is he would do a... A little better, right? Just, just a little bit better. He'd do way better. Well, why doesn't he do that? Because he, he invited me to be a part of this message. Again, very inefficient. You're not getting half of, or not even 10% of what he wanted to offer you guys this morning. But what he did, inviting me to be a part of this, is I get to experience Jesus in a new way, in a different way. And that's what he's after. He's not after how the product looks. That's really secondary to him. What he's more interested in is, can we do this together? Can we go on this adventure together? Because I, I want you to know my heart. I want you to know what I'm about. And the only way to do that, the only way to experience it that way is to actually go on a journey with him. So it's that journey, that intimacy that God's really after for us. 
And that's what he's inviting us to every day. Be a part of what I'm up to. Now, when you look at your journey, not all of it's been roses, though, right? Not all of it's been easy. And I wonder if that's why Paul chose this word workmanship. The word workmanship in the Greek is poema. It, it's where we get the word poem from. And you think about a poem, a poem is basically, it's a story. All right, I mean, there's, there's rhyming poems and all kinds of other poems, but essentially a poem is this beautiful picture of a story. And, and Hebrews talks about Jesus being as the author of that story. In fact, in, in Psalm 139 and verse 16, it, it talks about how Jesus sat down and he wrote out every day of my life and your life in a book, even before it ever were to happen. I like to imagine what that would have looked like. To imagine what was, what was that like? What was going on? And so I kind of imagine Jesus is sitting in his, his, his den, his study up in heaven, long before Genesis 1-1. And, and there's Jesus and there's God and there's the Holy Spirit and they're sitting around this beautiful ornate table. And they're sitting in this beautiful den or maybe this library, this wood panel library with all kinds of books on each shelf. And they sit down and they open up a fresh book. And they say, well, let's, Let's write the story of Ian. And they sit and they wrote out every aspect, every part of Ian's story. And they talked about it. And, and I don't mean in a fate, fatalistic kind of way where now Ian is, is fated to now live this out because they knew that Ian was going to make certain choices. And so giving Ian the freedom of choice and knowing what those choices were, they wrote out his story. Every day. And not just Ian's story, but Craig's story and Alden's story and all of our stories. And each, each book on that in the library would be another person's story. And I kind of imagine what it will be like to get up to heaven and kind of open up each of these books and be able to open up some of the books from the Old Testament saints. In a way, Hebrews 11 kind of gives us a, a recap of all that. Hebrews 11 is, the, is known as the hall of faith. And, and in here, the writer of Hebrews has given to us a, an incredible history of these great men and women of God and how they have shown faithfulness towards God and what God did as a result of that. And so it's, it's all about faith. It's all about how they trusted God in the moment. And look how their faith always led them to doing something. So I'm just going to read a lot of the passage to you, but just listen to this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. That God created all this. We're not the result of some accidental big bang. I bet you it was loud when it all happened, but it was on purpose. God created all this out of nothing. And so then the writer goes on and he lists these great men and women of God and what they did by faith. Abel did something. He offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. 
By faith, Enoch was taken up that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before he was being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, left everything to go to this far-off promised land to live like an alien. Even Sarah, by faith, Sarah received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. And it talks about, by faith, Moses. And then it talks about the children of Israel in, in, when they crossed over into the, uh, the promised land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab, which Rahab, Rahab? Oh, the harlot, just so we're clear. I love how that made it in there. God apparently wasn't offended by what she did. By faith, Rahab, the harlot, did not perish with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. What more shall I say? He's basically saying, time's running out. I, I, my hand's cramping up. I don't have enough, enough pages to write all the stories. The time will fail me if I tell you of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. I mean, he didn't even mention prophets like Ezekiel, or Elijah, and Mount Carmel, and Isaiah, and on and on. They never made the list. They're just in the end prophets. There's so many stories you could have told who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Could you imagine reading those in this book? Or maybe even just witnessing Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as they wrote it out. I mean, just think about that, that picture of Daniel in the, in the lion's den. And they're kind of chuckling to themselves, thinking, oh yeah, he'll go in there, but he'll be so safe. Or then, picturing how they wrote out Mount Carmel, right, where the, the, the prophets of Baal doing all kinds of crazy things, trying to inspire their God to somehow put out this fire. And then, then Elijah trash-talking. Where's your God, guys? Maybe he's in the bathroom. Let's give him some more time. I mean, that's what he says. It's beautiful. I can just imagine them chuckling at that scene. Great days. Aren't those great days? I mean, women received back the dead. The celebration that would go on in those days. Amen. But there are other days. So the passage goes on. It, it says, women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured. Not accepting their release. So that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men and women whom this world was not worthy, 
wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Those are some sad days. Suffering days. Days where things did not go as they probably would have hoped for them to go. And yet they're all part of the story. They're all part of the poema. And I imagine when, when God, when God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when they wrote out your story, and I imagine if you were to grab their, the book and open it up, and you were to read in your own story some of the great days, the day you were born, the, the day you first stood up, your first steps, first time you, you actually recognized God and you accepted Jesus as your Savior. And, and, and then maybe your you know, first crush and first date and all kinds of wonderful days, days that Jesus and Father, Son, Holy Spirit all celebrated. But then there are other days, days of sorrow, days of hurt and days of abuse, days of struggle, days where things did not go the way you hoped for. And we say, well, why, God? What was going on and all that? Where were you? And I think as you open up that book in heaven, I think you'll see tear stains on the pages. That God was not thrilled with the events, <coughs> that he wept over them, knowing your pain and your sorrow. He knows how difficult it was. He knows the price you paid to experience all that. Which begs the question, well, why didn't he stop it? I don't know why. I don't know if I'll ever know why, but I do know what was guiding God, what, what drives him, what he's after. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, it tells us that God causes all things to work together for our good. All things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the, the great, wonderful days and the difficult days. Every Every event God has looked at, he's examined every aspect of it, and he's come to the conclusion that I know this will hurt, but if you trust me, it will be for good. I didn't, I didn't cause this pain, but I will cause it to be good. I didn't, I didn't want you to experience this sorrow, but if you trust me, you will see how I will redeem it because I'm working for your good in everything. <coughs> what, what, what's our good? That we be conformed to the image of his son, that you and I would know him and experience him. And he knows what it's like. He knows exactly where you're at because he's a man acquainted with sorrows. And so the question for you and I really is, will we accept the poema? Will we accept the story that God has authored for us? That, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
sat down and wrote out, planning, preparing, knowing that as difficult of an event this was, that if we allowed him to redeem it, and you would know Jesus in a way that you never thought possible, but you wouldn't trade for anything. That, that he had a purpose in all your sorrow and difficulties. And that's what he's inviting us to. He's basically saying, will you trust my heart for you is good? Will you trust that I love you and experience my life now worked out in you for these good works, this adventure that I've got laid out for you going forward? It's so good. It's so good. Just, just come with me here. And yeah, there's going to be some more sorrow and more difficulties ahead. I, I know, I know. But trust me, even that is for your good. And I say that as one, God says, as one who suffered as you have suffered. Let's pray. Father, thanks for letting us be a part of your journey, for being a part of your story. And I... I plead now that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as we leave here this morning and would continue to talk to us. Continue to make clear to us the invitation that you give to us, that you don't force on us, but with a hand outstretched, with a gentle smile, inviting us to be a part of what you're doing. And I pray that as scary as that may seem, as terrifying as it may feel, that we would be willing to grab hold of your hand, to take you up on your offer, to experience life in you, experience all that you have for us, including redeeming that which has been painful. In your name we pray, amen.